Welcome to the New Testament Review, where every episode we discuss a classic piece of New Testament scholarship. Today we're discussing J.L. Martin's History and Theology in the Fourth Gospel, published in 1968, now in its third edition. Laura, what's this book about? So this book is about the Gospel of John, and this is where J.L. Martin lays out his extremely influential theory of the two-level drama in John's Gospel. What J.L. Martin argues is that while the ostensible narrative of John's Gospel is about the life of Jesus, his teachings, and his crucifixions, what's also being told alongside the story implicitly is the story of John's own community and how their community interacted with Judaism of their day, how they experienced the presence of Christ in their community, and how they understood themselves in eschatological history. It may be helpful to contextualize this in light of other running debates on the Gospel of John. Rudolf Bultmann argued that John was an anti-Gnostic text, and Kesemann argued it was a proto-Gnostic text. Both sides more or less agreed in situating the Gospel of John in a primarily Hellenistic, Greco-Roman milieu, taking on ideas from Platonism and contemporary Greco-Roman religion. If you read through Kesemann's Testament of Jesus, for instance, the Jews are mentioned only about three times in that entire book, whereas... The Gospel of John, the Jews play an incredibly prominent role, and of course not a particularly positive role. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes disappear from the synoptics, and in their place we find, quote, the Jews. And so one advantage of Martin's reconstruction and situation of this gospel is he's going to take really seriously the importance of this conflict in the compositional history of the fourth gospel. So a two-level drama is basically a story that is ostensibly about one thing and also tells a story about another thing. So, you know, this is probably pretty analogous to, to like an allegory. J.L. Martin is not arguing that John is a straight allegory where every character in the story just stands perfectly for somebody else. Like this is an animal farm, for instance, where, you know, each <laughs> Each pig is representative of a different leader in the Soviet government. Jail Martin's argument is a, it's a bit more complicated than this. He sees stories and controversies and issues in John's own day being played out as though they happened in Jesus's own lifetime. We see the community telling its own story through the way they tell Jesus's story. John's community believed that Jesus was radically present among them in a way that is basically continuous with Jesus's presence among his disciples in his life. In John 14, 23, we see that Jesus says, uh, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. So the community sees Jesus as being present among them through the form of the Holy Spirit. So uh, what Martin argues is that thinking of Jesus as being active among the community in a way that he was in his own lifetime enables the community to tell its story using the, the character of Jesus, because when the community acts, Jesus is basically acting too. He's acting through them. So how do we know that a two-level drama is happening here? Why do we think that this isn't just a story about Jesus? It's also a story about John's community. J.L. Martin is going to argue that in the deviations from the traditional forms of the gospel in the Johannine editions, you see anachronisms and sometimes explicit anachronisms that reflect the subsequent experience of the Johannine community over and against anything which could even plausibly be attributed to the historical Jesus or the narrative about Jesus. A 
good place to start, I think, just to clear this up really fast, is what is form criticism? Form criticism is a form of New Testament scholarship that focuses on the kinds of material that become the building blocks of the Gospels. So you'll notice in the Gospels, there are a lot of the same kinds of stories we see over and over again. We see miracle stories, we see healing stories, we see disputation stories where Jesus is in conflict with somebody and makes this uh, clever answer. And um, the one that Martin's going to be particularly interested in in the first section of his book is in a healing story. Uh, Most healing stories in the Gospels follow a pretty predictable pattern. Uh, We meet a character who is um, pretty considerable distress. There might be a discussion about how long they've been sick, how serious it is, how nothing has worked. They meet Jesus, they ask to be healed, they're healed, and then we see some sort of demonstration of the cure. This is the way these stories normally go. Martin's argument, while recognizably indebted to form-critical kind of analyses, is a little better controlled and and avoids some of their serious problems. Instead of seizing on the ideal, abstracted form in which a story should be told, notes Johannine additions to what he calls traditional gospel material. And how does he figure out what is traditional? Well, he picks three stories in the Gospel of John, that also appear in the Synoptic Gospels, which he believes are independent, and shows where John and the Synoptics line up in telling the same stories, and then notes the distinctively Johannine expansions on the Synoptic form of the story. So he's effectively doing something like proto-redaction criticism, except not with a literary source, but rather with the traditional Gospel story. As Laura mentioned, he's going to hone in on three stories, and we're going to pay particular attention to John 9, the healing of the blind man in Jerusalem. Martin himself doesn't really make a point of this, but part of the reason Martin's analysis has been so influential on scholars is there is a larger problem in the Gospel of John in its portrayal of Jesus's relationship to the Jews, and that is Jesus spends the entire Gospel of John not critiquing particular Jews or groups of Jews, but attacking, quote, the Jews as a whole. And he says things like, you are not children of Abraham, you are children of Satan. Now, there's, on one side of this, this doesn't show up in the synoptics, so that's problematic. On the other side of it, this is historically implausible, because Jesus and all of his followers were, of course, themselves Jews. And the idea that a Jew, a faithful Jew, a law-observant Jew, who sees himself as being sent not to the Gentiles, but to the Jews, would spend the entire gospel, or his entire ministry, walking around critiquing, quote, the Jews, and, quote, their synagogues, is just implausible. And so Martin giving a context, a historical situation, that is later than the life of Jesus, has struck scholars as really, really uh, plausible. So the bigger project is we need to make sense of why these really anachronistic things are showing up in John's gospel. They can't be from the life of Jesus, so where are they from? Seems like a good guess is that they're from John's own community. And we're going to get some explicit evidence for that in John 9 and the passages surrounding the word aposynagogos. So aposynagogos means out of apo, away from uh, the synagogue. So people being made um, in John 16, it says the Jews made the followers of Jesus made the followers of Jesus opposite synagogues. That is, they 
cast them out of the synagogue. Most Bibles translate this something like expelled them from the synagogue. And this is 920 to 22. So the parents of the blind men are talking and they are testifying in front of the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees who are very agitated about the fact that Jesus has gone and healed this blind man and they're trying to get some more information. And so what the parents say is that they don't know who healed their son and they put the onus on their son to answer for himself. And what the text says, 20 to 22, is his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. So uh, there's some few interesting things here. One is that the parents are afraid of the Jews when they are themselves Jews. That's a strange thing to happen. And also the Jews have already agreed, this group of people who are distinct from the parents, have already decided that they are casting followers of Jesus out of the synagogue. The same term opposinagogos shows up again in John 16, which is part of Jesus's long farewell address. And Martin draws attention to the fact that there is a self-consciously anachronistic statement there. So Jesus says, I've said all these things to keep you from stumbling. They will put you out of the synagogues. They will make you opposinagogos. Indeed, an hour is coming when those who will kill you think that they, that by doing so, they are offering worship to God. And they will do this because they have not known the Father or me. But I have said these things to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you about them. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Okay, so Jesus is saying in John 16 that he didn't say these things to them earlier because then he was with them. Martin points out this is a self-consciously anachronistic thing. This is Jesus speaking as if he'd already resurrected. And we see the same thing going on in John 3, where Jesus says, you know, I have, I have already gone up and risen to the Father. And we, this, this sort of thing happens throughout John. We have Jesus saying things that are stuck out of time and place. But here we have Jesus prophesying a future for the Christian community, which involves them being persecuted by Jews and put out of the synagogue and in a way that clearly signals to the reader that this is something that is happening after the time of Jesus. Aposynagogues is not, that, that's not a word you use for, for intra-synagogue discipline. Apo being away from, the, what's being implied there is someone being kicked out of the synagogue completely. This is not discipline within the synagogue setting. Paul and Acts portray the way Jews are responding to Christians as an intra-synagogue affair. Jews are doing things to punish Christians for preaching what they're preaching um, and to try to wipe out this as a heresy and preserve these people as members of the synagogue. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four, Paul says that he received synagogue discipline and it was 40 lashes minus one. You don't subject yourself to 40 lashes minus one unless you want to continue to belong to the Jewish people, to the synagogue. And then in Acts 9 and 22, we have a report that inter-synagogue discipline that Paul was, was visiting upon Christians. The, the high priest had given him authority to discipline Christians within the synagogue. So this is a very different thing from having the right to just kick people right out. This is still things that you would do to somebody who is going to still be a member after the fact. So our evidence for first century, mid to late first century, is that Christians weren't simply expelled from the synagogue. Rather, they were viewed as sort of an intra- Jewish problem. And it's just not conceivable that within Jesus's own lifetime, synagogues were all unified and organized and agitated enough about Jesus's own teaching that there is a clearly identifiable group of Jesus's followers that they were throwing out of the synagogue. So here we have another anachronism. It seems unlikely that 
Christians were being expelled from the synagogue during Jesus's life. And then our earliest evidence about the Christian community is that they were viewed as a sort of a deviant group of Jews who needed to be dealt with within the synagogue. And then, you know, of course, then thereafter, we then have the separation. Um, this doesn't seem a very plausible reconstruction. What, at what point in Christian history or in Jewish history were Jews actively casting Jewish Christian believers out of the synagogue? And one possible answer Martin finds is in a synagogal text called the Birkat HaMinim. Uh, this is part of the 18 blessings, the Amidah. Birkat HaMinim means blessing on the heretics. But as you'll see, it's in fact a curse. And for the apostates, let there be no hope. And may the insolent kingdom be quickly uprooted in our days. And may the, I'm going to leave two words untranslated here, Nostrim and the Minim perish quickly. And may they be erased from the book of life. And may they not be inscribed with the righteous. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who humbles the insolent. So this is attributed to a figure named Samuel the Small, who composed this supposedly in Jamnia before Gamaliel, who you might know from the book of Acts. Um, and this can be dated somewhere between 85 to 115, says Martin. So the menim is just the Hebrew word for a heretic. Um, these are just, you know, deviant Jews who uh, have said or taught something that uh, does not accord with rabbinic doctrine, and they're, they're heretics, they're outside of the church, let them perish quickly. There is some argument that this is a secondary edition, but you might have heard me say another uh, Hebrew word in that, and that's the nustream. This is the word for Nazarites, and we think that this is probably a reference to Christians. There's some question about how early this part of the prayer is, but it seems like there is a line in the Amidah that actually curses Christians. This is described in the Talmud as sort of a litmus test for synagogues. There's this great story about Samuel Ismail who composed it, who two years later forgot the wording of his prayer and spent hours trying to recall how to say it when he was officiating. That raised the problem, should, because Samuel the Small hesitated and wasn't able to pray the prayer, should we expel him? Because that's implicitly how it's being used. And the answer is no, anyone else would be expelled, but not him because he actually wrote the thing. It gives us an insight into how the compilers of the Talmud thought this prayer was used. So the idea is if somebody stands up and starts to read this and they can't pray this part and they stumble... It might suggest they're actually a Manim or a Nostrum hiding in your midst and you have smoked them out. And it's interesting when John in John 9 describes the Synagogos, he says that there are Jewish leaders who are still part of the synagogue who aren't, who haven't been found out, who are, who continue to be Christians um, and participate in the synagogue secretly for fear of the Jews, which sort of places these two things were described, this litmus test and John 9's description of Christians participating in synagogues secretly, Martin sees these things, this as sort of corroboration, that we're dealing with the same sort of network of ideas here. There are some questions about how, this ex how, how uh, convincing this argument actually is. For one thing, there's some question about how, how much uh, historical information we have that's actually reliable about Jamnia. It is often remembered in rabbinic texts as being this huge programmatic a meeting of rabbis to establish a doctrine in the wake of the destruction of the temple that was immediately put in effect in synagogues. Obviously, there's some question about whether or not this actually happened this way. Um, it's very unlikely that the overhauls in the rabbinic, the rabbinic world post-Jamini were actually that systematic. Scholars like Daniel Byaron and Shea Cohen have pointed out that there probably wasn't any ruling body in post-70 Judaism 
that had authority to enforce their rulings across synagogues all over the Roman world. Furthermore, there is this marked tendency in the Talmud and, of course, lots of other historical sources to take processes that took place over a long period of time and punctiliarize them, point to a specific time and a specific personality that put in place certain changes. And we have reason to think this probably doesn't reflect how religious reform and change actually happened. There's also a question of how old uh, the reference to the Nazarites in the Birkat Hamanim actually is. The oldest form that we recovered at Cairo Geneza has both Nostrum and the Menim. There have been scholars that have argued that the reference to Nostrum has to be secondary because it's known as the Birkat Hamanim, but it still stands that the oldest text we have has the Nostrum in it. There are some later versions that omit the Nostrum um, or just substitute a word of the wicked for, for both terms could be that this is Christian censorship. Yeah, we do have evidence that negative statements about Christians in the Talmud were censored in the Middle Ages, in the medieval period, both forcibly and in order to prevent the confiscation and destruction of these books. Martin flags this, but later scholars have made more of the fact that we do have early patristic evidence for curses against Christians in the Jewish synagogue. So, Justin Martyr repeatedly through the the dialogue with Trifo says that Jews curse Christians in their worship services. Kimmelman has a problem with this piece of evidence because he says at one point, Justin says this is happening after their prayers rather than during their prayers, which is what the Birkat is. This, I think, is probably Kimmelman being a bit nitpicky. The idea that Justin is not a reliable witness to a Jewish practice, you know, is plausible because, of course, he's not giving a sympathetic treatment to the Jews. But the idea that um, we can push aside his testimony because he gets the timing of the synagogue service wrong is a bit implausible. Um, And Justin is not our only evidence. Origen says roughly the same thing. And then Jerome and Epiphanius give us significantly more detail. Jerome and Epiphanius both say that Jewish synagogues curse the Nazarenes by which they are referring to Christians, which, of course, is the precise wording of the Birkat. And with all this stuff, there's always a response to the responders. Um, there's a 2009 article by Duke's own Joel Marcus called Birkat Hamanim Revisited. And he looks at some of these uh, responses to Martin's work and this frustration with the idea that this curse might actually be a thing that happened in Christian history to get rid of Christians in the synagogue. And, and you know, sees the complaints against it as being twofold. On one hand, there is a historical concern that the Birkat Hamanim is against heretics in general, um, that the uh, Geniza Forum that we have that particularly mentions the Nazarenes is secondary. Um, And then also, of course, the question of just how influential rabbis were at the end of the first century and how systematic their reforms were. And then, of course, the other theological point is, and we say theology here, not that we're trying to act like this is secondary, but it's it's a fair concern. They concerned that accusations of Jews persecuting Christians has often been held up as an explanation for or a justification for later practice, practices of Christians persecuting Jews. And scholars are obviously very wary to back any hypothesis of, of history that makes it seem like the score has been settled. And that's, you know, obviously that's a that's a fair concern, but we need to be careful to make sure that these concerns don't get in the way of, of history. And what Marcus has argued is that there actually is some really good evidence that synagogues were widespread and organized in the first century. A really good uh, indication of this is the fact that the Pharisees are so important in the Gospels. Uh, If the Pharisees 
the forerunners of the rabbis weren't relevant and didn't actually have influence over Jewish people's lives, then why are the Gospels so obsessed with talking about them and what they believe and how they act? It actually seems that for first century Jewish Christians, rabbis actually were a very active party. And it, it is totally possible that, that there were these strictures in place to try to keep Jewish Christianity out of the synagogues in order to preserve rabbinic doctrine. Marcus has his own theory on the origins of the Birkat Hamanim. He sees this as being a uh, pre-Christian prayer that was actually intended to originally be against the Romans and was repurposed. We're not going to get into the uh, nitty gritty of this. If you want to read about it, it's Joel Marcus, Birkat Hamanim Revisited, 2009 article. If you want more on how uh, Joel Marcus and in dialogue with Richard Hayes deal with the fact of, you know, anti-Jewish literature being in a canonical New Testament, um, both worried about whitewashing historical documents at the same time not wanting to reinscribe uh, anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic ideas, which have, of course, a long and sordid history of use and exploitation by Christians. We have a special episode we released oh, yeah, about, we uh, it was like our fourth episode, where they discuss precisely this issue what people, what, what other people of faith or just sensitive scholars to the implications of their work, how they should approach matters like this. Go listen to that. Right. So let's go top to bottom real quick in how the logic of this argument is supposed to work. We have in John evidence of a hostility between Jesus and his followers, Christians, self-consciously anachronistically described in John 16, and the Jews that takes the form of expulsion from the synagogue. And Martin has shown using Paul and Luke Acts, that this is not the way Jewish-Christian relations worked um, in the mid-first century, and of course it's really implausible that it worked that way previously. So he's found a different point, which may be or may not be datable to the late first, early second century, that actually explains or lines up with what we see in John's language about the Aposynagogos. So what this means for the interpretation of John is that we can see that there is a, what we call a two-level drama happening here. There is a story about Jesus and his disciples that is also telling us a story about G John's community in its own day. We see the story being particularly acted out in the story of the blind man who is healed by Jesus um, and is taken in for questioning. His parents uh, are aware of the stakes that they don't want to be kicked out of the synagogue. They leave him on their uh, on his own. He answers these questions. He is revealed to be a disciple of Jesus over against a disciple of Moses, which is in the text. And for this is cast out of the synagogue and goes on to worship, worship Jesus. This seems to be a really good indication that what was happening in John's own day is that Christians were having to decide whether or not they identified as disciples of Jesus or disciples of Moses. And if they made that confession, would be kicked out of the synagogue couldn't do both anymore. So this obviously has implications for how you read the entire Gospel of John. And I think Martin's insights have been used both really productively and, uh, and in a really wooden, rather mechanical, uh, implausible way. The latter, for an example of the latter, we could look at something like Raymond Brown's reconstruction of the history of the fourth Gospel, where he takes Martin's insight that what we have here is sort of a two-level drama going on and says, we can read the whole Gospel this way. If Jesus does one thing, that's something that happened to Christ a Christian preacher or the Christian community. And if the Jews do something, that was a Jewish group. When Jesus goes to the Samaritans, that means the Jesus community now has an influx of Samaritan converts. Sort of, the entire Gospel of John is a cipher for the history of the Johannine community. And this, 
I think, is really, really implausible and does not follow from Martin's insight. All narratives being retold are shaped by the current concerns and the experience of the tellers. And it's true that we have anachronisms from the Christian his, from Christian history seeping into the Gospel of John. But the idea that you could turn around then and read every narrative as if all it's concerned about is re-narrating the life of the community through sort of ciphers in the in the persona of Jesus. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me as a way of reading John, as a way of like why you'd write this as a bios, and seems like a really wooden application yeah. of this principle. Right. Yeah. Martin is not Martin is not writing an invitation to allegorize. He is looking for particular signs in the text that there is something happening more than simply telling the story of Jesus. And that is in anachronism. It's in, in deviations from forms that we see in the gospels. It's in traits that John has that are unique to John and are very distinct from the other gospels. Those are the hints you're looking for. It's not just it's not just reading John like it's Animal Farm. Maybe a closer analogy, although imperfect, because we're still talking about a fictional universe, is Revenge of the Sith, episode three of Star Wars, where George Lucas puts on the lips of the villain a quote from George W. Bush. This was movie was being made towards the end of the Bush years. So we have pre-existing characters where he's now writing a new story, and into this new story is writing some of Lucas's current day, modern day concerns and agendas. That is not to say that this whole movie could be read as one giant allegory for the Bush years, but that the concerns and experiences are filtering through to affect the story. For Martin, it matters that John isn't intending to write this way. John isn't intending to explicitly just create a fiction where where Jesus play acts for the community. Most early Christians, scholars since the decline of form criticism, believe really did care about the life of Jesus. And when they write stories, I mean, they're writing things because this is, of course, what he should have said type of thing. <laughs> and for Martin, that does, that's an important d- distinction, that this isn't simply a funny way of writing the history of your community, but he is, in fact, writing about Jesus. Explaining how that might work psychologically there's a whole literature on this, and it's not particularly interesting, in my opinion. Contemporary prophets who are getting new insights, and maybe this is grounded in Jesus' statement that he'll send the Spirit to remind you of the things that I taught you, and that then is the justification for writing new narratives. Who knows? Not important for our current study. I'm going to close with a quote from Martin on what he thinks uh, John is doing here. He says about the New Testament authors, None of them merely repeats the tradition. Everyone hears it in his own present, and that means in his own way. Everyone shapes it, bends it, makes selections from among its riches, even adds to it. Put in other ways, everyone reverences the tradition enough to make it his own. And aside for the uh, male-centric language there, I think that's a good way to put it, Martin. Agreed. All right, I think that does it for uh, History and Theology of the Fourth Gospel. Yep. You can find more about us on Twitter at Newt, N-E-W-T, Review or email us at newtestamentreview at gmail.com. 